Good morning. Hopefully now you've turned in your Bibles to the latter portion of the Older Testament, and we're looking at today, as well as in the coming Sundays, four messianic promises that God has given his people. And Haggai, that was just read to you, gave this message in 520 B.C., And so what we want to do is to once again consider how God, who is sovereign over all, sovereign over time, sovereign over the events of all of history, has a way of taking his word and relating it directly to the promised one to come, we know as Jesus Christ, who we'll be able to spot in these very verses. So with that in mind, with the passage already having been read, let's look to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, now we are thanking you and we are praising you that you are the God who promised Messiah Jesus to come, that you orchestrated the events and time day by day and week by week, year by year, even century by century, so that in the fullness of time, Christ Jesus came forth. So we're overawed, Father, with the way in which you sovereignly work out details, the way in which you will bring a promise into the lives, into the hearts of people who, whether they be spiritually lethargic or indifferent, stirs the hearts and challenges all to look very carefully and look very seriously at what it is that you had promised, to understand the strategy that you have for humankind and how it relates to each one of us at a very personal level. As the Thanksgiving weekend comes to a close and as Advent is already starting, we find ourselves in a transitional moment. Thankful as we've expressed from our hearts for what you've done over this Thanksgiving season. The sense of anticipation of what it is you want to say and do in and through us with this Advent season unfolding. So, Father, with our Bibles open, with our minds prepared, as we prepare ourselves now to examine your truth and how it relates to our lives. Warm these hearts and engage these minds and shape these wills. As once again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Certainly seized our attention these last weeks, what took place in Paris. But there was a particular event that was unfolding that was picked up by the French newspapers. And perhaps you've seen the picture of a pregnant woman trying to flee the concert hall. And she's hanging from a a railing high above the ground. And her strength's fading with each passing minute. 
And as the chronicler puts it, in a calm yet pleading voice, she asks others who are fleeing beneath her to come to her aid. No one stops. And the growl of the gunfire nips at their heels, and the panic is palpable. But then, just then, a young man by the name of Sebastian, himself hanging from a ventilation shaft within arm's reach of a window, decides to re-enter the building and give the desperate woman a helping hand. And just when she feels that she can hang on no longer, Sebastian, leaning out of the window above her, takes hold of her arms and pulls her to safety. But as the writer puts it, Sebastian's act of bravery comes at a cost. Moments later, he is taken hostage by the terrorists, and in what seems to be nothing short of a miracle, he will survive the nightmare and emerge with his life from this improbable sequence of tragic events. And now, thanks to modern technology and social media, Twitter, the pregnant woman will later meet her Savior in person. It is 520 B.C. And for some reason, there is a work stoppage. What God has done is that he has orchestrated a strategy, a scheme of events, where the Persian King Cyrus is granted permission for a, a small but very solid group of people, less than 50,000, to return from captivity. They have been taken captive by the Babylonian forces in prior years. And now Governor Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua leading the way what they need to do is to press forward the understanding of the value of the need for this one who will come at a cost to die for our sins. And that reconstruction of the temple that had been decimated by the Babylonians would serve as a symbol of what was to come. Yet for 16 years there has been a a work stoppage, as described in Ezra chapter 4 and in verse 24. And there needs to be a renewed stirring of the Holy Spirit within these people to re-engage in the construction of this temple because there is a lethargy from within their hearts combined with a spiritual opposition from among the Samaritan people on the outskirts of the Jerusalem precincts, what is desperately needed is a word of God to break in and draw their attention ultimately to the one who is to come, which is what this messianic prophecy in 520 B.C. addresses for you 
and for me. And what you and I need to do now is to allow for God's word as we see over the spectrum of time and the various promises that coalesce together and create this forward movement towards this ultimate strategy of salvation to unfold before us. And with 520 B.C. in mind, recognizing there are still years to come before Jesus enters in via Bethlehem, Allow now for God to speak to your heart and to my heart. And there are three significant considerations that are found here in these verses that prep you, prep me in this Advent season to stay focused upon that one who is to come. We know him as Jesus. Now, the first flows out of verse 1 down through verse 3, and we're going to put it like this, number 1 that in our Advent preparations, I want you to consider with me the questions that God has posed. The questions that God has posed. And we're going to inch into this one, two, and three. And by the time you and I get to that third verse, what we're going to spot are various questions that God is posing to the hearts of these people. But lead in. Because in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Let's camp on that one for just a minute. Now notice with me, every word counts. It's the seventh month. God has divinely chosen that on the 21st day of that month, he would speak. Now, let's put that in context as to when he speaks, why he speaks, where he speaks, and so on. The seventh month, 21st day, is the last day of what is known as the Feast of Booths. If we were to put that in modern-day terminology, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles was the Jews' version of Thanksgiving. Sort of the entail of their Thanksgiving celebrations. And at the entail of their Thanksgiving celebrations, what you and I have is a messianic promise almost as if there is a a Christmas card come early at the end of their Thanksgiving celebrations. See what we're doing? Seeing now how this begins to fit in? Seeing how things begin to merge here? Every word counts, every day counts in the sovereign plans of God. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, or in some of our translations, Feast of Booths, commemorated the wilderness wanderings, you see, of the Jewish people. But now it's harvest time. And we're at the tail end of the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the midst of this, time of Thanksgiving, where there has been this 16-year work stoppage when construction on the tabernacle has ceased. They've gone on strike. 
The Word of God breaks in. It is always astounding to me the timing of God's Word. Of how He seems to break in at strategic moments to seize your attention, to seize my attention, and force us to begin to ask ourselves the tough questions. Do I have that sense of passion to be willing to live for God, to work for God, to serve our Lord? Or have I allowed myself to enter into some form of work stoppage in the way in which I go about on a daily basis living for my God? What God is about to do at this point is to stir the hearts of the people. Has he ever done that for you? They're at that end of the Thanksgiving holidays, and he's bringing in an Advent message, and he challenges them to look back in their own feast and ponder the significance of it all and how the waterings themselves were used by God to sovereignly position the Israelites as they enter into the land of Canaan to ultimately, under the auspices of a Solomon, construct a temple. But the Babylonians have decimated that temple, and now these returning people, refugees, if you will, they're looking at what once was, and they're recalling the good old days. Now, my take on that is nostalgia isn't what it always used to be. The good old days weren't always the good old days. In the good old days, people in the good old days were looking back upon the good old days. So here we have it, and the people now become somewhat lethargic. They've embraced almost a status quo. They're willing to put their efforts into building their homes and adding on and refurbishing, yet there lay the temple still in its ruins. And Haggai, the prophet, is given words from God. There seems to be a lack of passion here that needs to be addressed. It was halftime, the football game, Thursday night. And one of those significant moments that in sports history causes people to pause and reflect. As you see a Brett Favre and a Bart Starr embracing one another. As I watched that scene, my mind went back to something that was written about Bart Starr when he was asked about his relationship with Vince Lombardi. In Jerry Kramer's book on Lombardi, he quotes stars saying, I wasn't mentally tough before I met Coach. I hadn't reached the point where I refused to accept second best. I was too nice at times. I don't believe that nice guys necessarily finish last. But to win, you have to have a certain amount of mental toughness. 
And Coach Lombardi gave me that. And I underlined these words. He taught me that you must have a flaming desire within. It's got to dominate you. In all of your waking hours, it can never wane. And then I highlighted it. It's got to glow in you all the time. What I see here is the diminishment of the glow. A decline of the spiritual passion. So that for 16 years, the people have lived in some form of lethargy. Spiritual lethargy. They found enough energy to rebuild their homes, but not enough energy to rebuild the temple. The glow isn't there. And so in verse 2, three significant people groupings now are addressed. Do you see them? Speak now to Zerubbabel. And furthermore, second of all, to Joshua. And then thirdly, not to some, but to all the remnant of the people. Now, Zerubbabel was of the Davidic line. David had resourced the construction of the temple. Solomon then took those resources and oversaw it. And people would have the opportunity of recalling the good old days when the glory filled that temple. And then here is Joshua, the high priest. And his name would take him back to that one who would guide the Jewish people into the land of Canaan and be able to overcome the various challenges that awaited them. And thirdly, the remnant. The remnant who had endured so many years of captivity and are now standing on that very promised land of God. And so God has a word to the leadership. Zerubbabel, the political leader. Joshua, the high priest, the religious leader. And not the sum, but all the remnant, according to verse 2. Three people groupings. And with three people groupings in mind in verse 2, we now spot three significant questions in verse 3. And here they come. Number one, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Now, it's very valuable for us to look to the past to gain guidance. But it is very dangerous to live in the past and give it glory. And probably what we find here in this spiritual lethargy at this time is that there is a status quo form of complacency that has spiritually crept into their souls. Question. If you allowed any form of spiritual lethargy to creep into your soul, where you allowed the glow of the past to become nothing more than a diminished sense 
of what God is doing in the present. Sixteen years here of indifference. Why in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, maybe some of the excuses that were not necessarily verbalized, but certainly internalized, was that it seemed as though, well, the timing just wasn't right to work on this temple, you see. But God's word breaks in. And as God's word breaks in, significant questions have got to be placed within the precincts of the soul. Do you allow God's questions to reside within your own heart? As you ask yourself, am I willing to simply embrace the glory of what once was? Or am I willing to embrace the guidance of what now is and allow our trajectory to guide me into future days of high-level service for my God, no matter what my age might be? Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? It's almost as if they are forming a sense of comparisons and saying, what is versus what was. And they talk about the good old days. Yet God is something even more significant than the glory that had filled the temple of Solomon of what is still to come. But a second question, and now it gets personal, and it gets terribly contemporary. How do you see it now? Now, interestingly, it doesn't ask, and how does God see it now? But he does ask, how do you see it now? It's getting very personal here. Are you willing to allow these ruins to remain as is? It's almost a a visual representation of the way your heart is. Or are you willing to roll up sleeves and do something about the present? to create a sense of traction into the future. The third question, is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now, not in God's eyes, but in your eyes. Where are you at these days with God, the writer asked using the same casual tone of voice as he would have used to ask about the weather. Where am I at with God? He repeated the question as he looked off at a 40-degree angle from me. And there was at least a 30-second pause, and I decided to wait it out. Do you really want to know He responded to that question with a question of his own. Yeah, I'm your friend. I'm interested, I responded. I'm not anywhere, he said. And I haven't been for a long time. And when it comes to my Christian life, I'm now simply going through motions. Quote, unquote. I made a mental note to ponder his meaning. 
His comments suggested that there was a sector in his world called the Christian life. And that there were other sectors that were other, some other sort of life. You ever sector off your Christianity? Question. There was a time in my younger years, he went on, when it all seemed to grab my attention. Jesus, faith, I mean, I really wanted to make my Christian commitment the absolute center of everything. But somewhere along the way, I've lost it. I mark what is said next. And so now I perform more out of Christian habit than anything else. Has that ever marked your life? Another question. Well, then what drives you to keep on with the habits, I probe? Well, I suppose only the fact that I'm getting to the point in life where it's too late to change. My family life is all centered on Christian activities. And I don't want to hurt the routine, my wife or the kids. And besides, life's been good to me. So why upset the Christian routines that have gotten me this far? So I just keep chugging along. Quote. Unquote. Have you settled for simply Christian routine? There's a danger of sectoring off the Christian experience, but in the process, losing the glow. And then wondering where we find the necessary internal passion to carry on the work. Critical questions. Three of them. Three questions from a third verse. You see, in our Advent preparations, number one, you and I consider the questions that God has posed. A second. Number two, in our Advent preparations, consider with me the challenge that God has delivered. Verses four and five. Now, notice the wording here. In verse 4, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares Haggai. No. The Lord. Now, he shifts. Be strong, O Joshua. Son Jehozadak, the high priest. Now he shifts again. Be strong, all you people of the land. Interestingly, of the land. Declares the Lord. Now, when I look at that, he says, yet now be strong. Not once. Be strong. Not twice. 
be strong. Three times. And you draw a line back to verse 2, where Haggai had been told by God to speak to Zerubbabel, the religious leader, to speak to Joshua, the high priest, Zerubbabel, the political leader, high priest, Joshua, religious leader, and then all the remnant who are to have sleeves rolled up, but evidently at this point, sleeves rolled down. And so now it's time for them to hear God's word clearly. Have you created space in your soul to hear God's word clearly? And so what he delivers now is an exhortation to all three groups that we identified in verse 2. Take one of them. Take Joshua. And as Joshua the high priest finds himself, for example, getting called out, and he hears the wording, be strong, his mind would go back to a, a previous man by the name of Joshua who was challenged to be strong, the one who would lead the Israelites into the land of Canaan. We're in Joshua chapter 1, verse 6, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to the fathers to give them. Or you take, for example, Zerubbabel, who was of the line of David, and you consider very carefully that also that line of a previous era was a Solomon who heard similar be strong challenges coming his way. And likewise, in a contemporary way, Zechariah, another one of the post-exilic prophets, saying of something similar. So we need that sense of a be strong in order to re-energize our ministries, our work both in the private as well as the public spheres. When you do that, you're able to find a renewed sense of that inner spiritual passion, like an Athanasius, the early church father, who's told by his judge that the whole world was against him, and then responded with these words, then is Athanasius against the whole world. Or as a Luther had to be operating from this same sense of it all when he stood before the intimidating power of the papal authorities from Romans said, here I stand, I can do no other. So help me, God. Now, once you find and embrace that new sense of the be strong, when you feel as though your spiritual strength is declining, then you're able to embrace the next wording, the wording of work. He brings together, he bridges together the threefold challenge of be strong to the singular effort now, work. Work. Oh, I once worked. But now I'm basically harnessing what diminished energies I have in dealing with just the small sector of life. But as we allow for the smaller sectors of life to dominate our Christian experiences, 
work becomes a thing of the past rather than a thing of the present. What are you doing for the Lord? Work, he says, for I am with you, declares, and interestingly, a repetitive phrase, the Lord of hosts. Or as some translators will put it, the Lord of armies. And perhaps they're looking at the ruins and pondering the results of the armies of the Babylonian forces under Nebuchadnezzar. But there is one greater than Nebuchadnezzar here who is speaking to them regarding their own work shortage. And it's time to once again step up, stand out, move forward. Willard Hotchkiss. I have dwelt 40 years practically alone in Africa. I have been 39 times stricken with a fever, three times attacked by lions, several times by rhinoceri. But let me say to you, I would gladly go through the whole thing again if I could have the joy of again bringing that word Savior and flashing it into the darkness of the region in which I have lived have that sense of it all? No matter what stage of life you're in. And so the threefold be strong now comes together with the challenge work. And the be strong appears before the word work. And then he adds this phrase, for I am with you. For I am with you declares the Lord of hosts. And this has been a very powerful phrase throughout the Old Testament. And it's fascinating to me that it's being re-uttered once again right in the precincts of the temple, which was to be a symbolic demonstration of the witness of God. I will be your God. You will be my people, and there I will dwell in the midst of you. But something needs to be done to symbolically project both inwardly and outwardly the witness of God. Do you have that sense of it all? Joseph did when he was in his imprisonment. In verse 5, he goes on to say, According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, so now what we find here is being, he's being energized, they're being energized to be strong, to do God's work, and it's to be done because of the covenant, the promise that God has delivered his, to his people, and they can go back and consider the witness of God even in those wilderness moments. But that's not all. Not only the past, but it merges with the present. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. My word. Even though right now the temple is in ruins, and though that temple was to be the precinct of the witness of God, God in our midst, Though the temple is in ruins, God is still saying, I'm in your midst. 
And the beautiful thing is, even when you're in a work stoppage with God, God makes His way into your precincts of life. There is a witness of God. It's the merging of the Jews' thanksgiving celebrations with a promise of Advent. Seize their attention. What are you doing for God? He adds... He adds these words. Fear not. One of the beautiful expressions throughout the Older Testament is this. Do not be afraid. If He is for us, who can be against us? So why do we have to fear? It's a word of praise that they feared the Lord, but here he says, do not fear, do not fear anything else. Fear the Lord. As we were standing in Westminster Abbey, there's a tablet commemorating the life of Lord Napier. did such a great work in the British Empire in India. And on the tablet under his name are these words. Quote, He feared men so little because he feared God so much. What brings fear to your heart today? There's a third consideration. We've said number one, to consider the questions God has posed, and there were three of them found in verse three. And number two, we've been challenged to consider the challenge that God has delivered, not once, not twice, but three times to three different people groups to be strong. That preceded the challenge to work, which was tied together with the covenant of the past, with the sense that my spirit remains in your midst. And by the way, do a study sometime of the work of the Holy Spirit in the Older Testament. Don't wait for Pentecost in your studies of the Scriptures. Spirit is in the midst here. As the Spirit is in the midst here, Zechariah, a contemporary of Haggai, another post-exilic prophet, would say something similar in his writings in Zechariah chapter 4, where in verse 6 he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord, interestingly enough, the Lord of hosts. The same Lord of Hosts phrase that's used here with Haggai as they're looking at the decimation of the armies that Nebuchadnezzar had brought into the land of Israel. But now, here in verse 6, here is your third consideration for heaven. Consider thirdly the promise that God has made, verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. For now, thus says the Lord of hosts. You can't get away from that phrase, can we? Yet once more. 
He's not, he's not going to settle for just simply glory in the past, is he? Neither should we. Yet once more, in a little while. Now, notice what's coming next here. I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. The heavens and the earth are a vertical dimension. The sea and the dry land encompassing the horizontal dimension. He's leading us toward that day of the Lord's statement here in verse 6. But he's not done with this idea of shaking. Because in verse 7, I will shake all nations, not some of them, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house. It hasn't even been repaired yet. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So he now moves from the strengthening in the prior verses to the shaking of these verses. And you say, but Gary, where's the messianic promise that's here? Let me try to put it together in a little bit of a personal story because this isn't as easy as it might look in our translations. It was my senior year in college, and I had been asked to speak in a chapel. It's called Edmund Chapel, and I'd done it on occasion. And I was making my way out of the chapel because I had to take a biochemistry exam later that day, and I was going to be playing in a ball game that night, so my mind was on other things. When I was stopped, I was stopped on my way out. A man walked up to me and asked, Gary, have you ever considered becoming either a professor or a pastor? And I said, not whatsoever. No. And the professor said, would you be willing at least to come to my course I'll be teaching, I'm teaching in the coming days. I'm, I'm speaking on, teaching on Haggai. I'd love for you just to listen in, think about what, how God might be leading. His name was Dr. Herbert Wolf. Gracious man. Intelligent man. Outstanding teacher. Now, it wasn't a turning point for me to become a pastor or a professor or anything. My, my trajectory at that point was in a different direction. I just simply remember saying to him, well, I don't think it's God's will. But he, he brought a sense of confusion to my mind about my life trajectory. So I visited that class, and he happened to be speaking and teaching on Haggai, and I came back a second or third time. He was speaking and teaching the grad students. I've got in front of me his little commentary on Haggai. And in particular, some of his statements regarding this verse that we're now staring at, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And we'll pause there. Now he notes that there are grammatical difficulties and perhaps intentional ambiguity of the author. 
For those of us that might have brought a King James Version in, it reads, the desire of all nations shall come. But other translations have moved away from that and increasingly have talked about the treasures of all nations shall come in. So there is, as he put it, a trend away from the possible messianic desire toward the impersonal concept of valuable things. Why? You've got to lean forward as Dr. Wolf is teaching his grad students at this point. As he writes, the reason for the controversy is the use of a plural verb, come, with a singular noun, desire, which may have the collective idea of desired things. Having pointed this out, most commentators immediately eliminate any reference to a person. The problem is far more complicated, however, because by substituting different vowels, the noun can also be plural and can agree with the verb and number, and it is a well-known fact that the vowels are a later addition to the text of the entire Old Testament. Actually, both the singular and the plural form of desire are used in Scripture with reference to persons. He sums up, whether singular or plural, the noun means something like preciousness. It can refer to either highly valued persons or possessions. He pulls it together. When Christ entered the temple in the first century, the Lord's house was filled with glory as it had never been before. And strictly speaking, whenever God fills his house with glory in the Older Testament, a visible cloud signifying the presence of God enters the sanctuary. Isaiah 60 verse 7 connects the wealth of the nations with the glorifying of his house. But can material splendor fill the temple with glory alone? When the child Jesus was brought to the temple by Mary and Joseph, the aged Simeon expressed profound thanks to God for permitting him to see his salvation. He identified this young Jesus with, quote, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Luke chapter 2, verse 32. And so the desire of the nation comes in. And you and I think of the time in which the wise men came bringing their gifts to the desire of the nations. And the desire of the nations in turn would be dedicated within that temple. And I will fill this house he goes on to say, I will fill this house with his glory. And all the temples of past, present, future are tied together here in this grouping in sense of the glory of God as God is honored in that final day. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And now you consider all the more the tensions in the Middle East in general and the tensions surrounding that whole matter of the temple in particular. 
and the silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And now these people think back to when Nebuchadnezzar's armies, his hosts, had removed the gold and the silver, and there was this Belshazzar who was toasting the gods of the Babylonians with those very temple gold and silver utensils that had been seized from the temple. And now God is saying, but I am the Lord of hosts, and the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares whom the Lord of hosts, as these people are pondering this in the midst of the ruins. As a result of the hosts of Nebuchadnezzar. But then in verse 9, something more is added here. The gladder glory, the latter glory of this house, speaking of what is still to come, shall be greater than the former glory. The former says, the Lord of hosts. There is something of even greater significance than what took place in the temple of Solomon, he's saying. God is not done with his work. Roll up your sleeves, he's saying to those who are spiritually lethargic. Don't be done with your work. As they're looking at the ruins of that current temple and pondering how out of this there will be still one greater yet to be built. And there's this sense of the glory of God that's being tied together so that in the future day, the nations are going to pour their wealth into that house in recognition of God's glory, similar to what the wise men did in Bethlehem. Don't despise smaller beginnings. And in this place, in this place, and now past, present, and future, all come together as you and I think about the coming of our Lord In this place, I will give peace. And the word Jerusalem has the word peace in it. Shalom. There is still more to come. Declares the Lord of hosts. Nebuchadnezzar's hosts decimate the temple. The Lord of hosts brings His glory to the temple. And the future glory is even greater, you see, than the prior glory, and how we see even what took place with the wise men, and how Joseph and Mary would bring Jesus into the temple where the glory is being acknowledged, and you and I embrace the questions that are being posed. We embrace the challenge of be strong, work according to what is being delivered. We consider the promise that God has made, verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. And now when we ponder a Sebastian, Sebastian, who reaches out when no one else was willing to reach out to take a risk that no one else was willing to do, to give of his life when others were attempting to simply spare their own. As the writer puts it, it came at a cost. Moments later, he's taken hostage by the terrorists. In what seems to be nothing short of a miracle, he will survive the nightmare, emerge with his life from this improbable sequence of tragic events, and thanks to Twitter, the pregnant woman will later meet 
as Savior in person. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, someday you will meet your Savior in person. Let's stand together. We see how astoundingly our sovereign Lord, you, could break into the spiritual lethargy in a 520 B.C. setting when everything else is in ruins and still speak of the glory to come and then make it happen. So I want to pray first of all for the one in any of these services today that's coming in who has not put faith and trust exclusively in Messiah who in this passage was promised to come who we know has come and someday will return. Bring them to the realization of true glory that is found in Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. May they put their faith and trust in Him. And for all, Father, who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, but for some reason have sectored off their Christian experience and are simply going through motions. Renew their inner passion. Challenge them, Father, as you had rolled up sleeves and sent Jesus Christ into this world to provide the finished work of salvation. That our worshipful response is with sleeves rolled up. We minister in the light of your presence leading still others to you. May we take now this incredible promise and apply it to everyday life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.